Let's uh, go to the Word. Uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in light of what we have just sung tonight, these aren't just words that we sing, but it's the true hearts. Our hearts' desire tonight is that you will do whatever it takes in each of our lives to draw us closer to you. I pray that you would wean us off the things of this world, the love of this world, that you would draw us closer and closer to you, that you would, by your grace and by your spirit to the person and work of Christ, that you would put to death ongoing sin in our lives, put to death idolatry in our hearts, those things that we love more than you. So would you come and do that, I pray, in my own heart and in the hearts of your people here. Do what only you can do, God. Would you come and by your grace and by your spirit, Work so much in our hearts that you are truly the love of our lives, that we treasure you above all other things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we stand in all of you, praising you all the days of our lives, all the way into glory, where we will continue to praise you. So come, please put those things to death in our hearts that we love more than you. Reveal those things to us tonight as we look upon your own glory, as we see how glorious you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you help us to see that the things of this world pale in comparison to you? So come now, we ask. Come and draw near to us as your people. Come and take away distractions. We come in here with a lot of different things on our minds. Father, would you focus our hearts and our eyes, our minds upon you tonight? And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would exalt Christ tonight. We ask that you would guide us in all truth in the word, revealing more and more of the glory of Christ to us and into the word tonight. Help me. As Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? I know I'm not, but you are. And so I pray that by your grace and by your spirit, you would fill me tonight, that you would help me to teach your word faithfully and clearly in the power of the spirit, not in my own strength, and that you would use your word to save those who are lost in this room tonight. Use your word to sanctify your people, conforming them more in the image of Christ. Use your word tonight to build up your church here. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, David taught on prayer from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And we see in Jesus' prayer to the Father, here in John 17, verses 1 through 5, that his betrayal, trials, and crucifixion are imminent. And we see here in this chapter, in verses 1 through 5, an emphasis on the glory of God. And as David was teaching on this last week, it really jumped off the page to me how many times in different forms this word glory is mentioned in the first five verses of Jesus' high priestly prayer. So I want to read that again and want to point, these, point that out to you. So John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify, so there's the first one, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So five times in in different forms, the word glory is mentioned here. And so the emphasis, I believe, uh, is when it comes to Jesus praying to the Father here is on the glory of the Father and his own glory. And so it begs the question, if that was the main concern for Jesus Christ, his own glory and the glory of his Father, how much do we consider the glory of God in our own lives? How important is it to you? And does your prayer life give evidence of that? And I uh, want to argue that this is the, the central theme of the Scriptures, the glory of God. So that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. So we're going to step out. David's going to, uh, Lord willing, the next couple of weeks, talk about or expound on John chapter 17. But what I want to do tonight is focus in on the glory of God. And I, I want to look at all of Scripture and see what Scripture says about the glory of God. So that's where we're going to go tonight. And so let's talk about, first of all, the meaning of the glory of God. I'm going to do my best to do the impossible, to define the meaning of the, the glory of God. And considering the word itself, glory, the, the primary Hebrew term for glory is, and it's spelt in the English K-A-B-O-D, but it's pronounced kavod, kavod. And the word stems from a root that means weight or heaviness. And depending on its form, it can have the sense of honorable, dignified, exalted, or revered. John Collins, professor of Old Testament Covenant Theological Seminary, explains it this way. He says, it's a technical term for God's manifest presence. It is similar in many respects to the concept of, of God's name in the Old Testament. According to Steve Lawson, the word glory in the Greek is doxa, D-O-X-A, includes the meaning of a, and this is, quote, I quote Steve Lawson, a correct opinion or estimation of someone. It carries the idea of the reputation someone had. From doxa, we derive our English word orthodox, which means a correct belief about something. It came to refer to a high opinion about a notable person of great renown and reputation. It indicates the honor due a person of high standing. The greater the person, the greater he should be revered. And in like manner, the more that we study theology, the study of God, the higher our view of God will be. And in turn, the more we will praise him. And it's also interesting to note that the glory of God is sometimes used in the Bible as an adjective, sometimes as a a noun, and sometimes as a verb. So, for example, God is glorious. That's an adjective. He reveals his glory. That is a noun. And he is to be glorified. That is a verb. So with these thoughts in mind, here is an attempt at a summary definition for God's glory. God's glory refers to the revelation or display of himself. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections, 
We see the excellence, the worthiness, the perfection of God's character both internally and externally as it is shown in creation, in redemption of sinners, in the condemnation of the wicked, and in the consummation of all things. So that is a a summary definition for God's glory. And the reality is God attends for his glory to be known so that he is glorified. He wants his glory to be known. He wants his glory to be spread throughout the whole earth globally. And he is doing that as I speak. So we're going to walk through the scriptures tonight and we're going to look at the glory of God. We're going to fixate our hearts and our eyes and our minds on the glory of God. And my hope and prayer for you and and for me is that God in his kindness and his grace and by his spirit through the person and work of Christ, that he will open up our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds to see more and more of the glory of God in in his word and ultimately in the person and work of Christ. And my prayer and hope is, is as he does that tonight, as he does that, that it will lead us to reverent and exuberant God-glorifying worship. That is my prayer for, for you and for me. So surveying the Scriptures to see God's glory, by no means is this an exhaustive list. You can't exhaust the glory of God. So this is not an exhaustive list by any means. But nevertheless, turn with me, if you could, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to look at verses 25 and 26. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 and 26. Of course, this is the prophet Isaiah prophesying. Ultimately, it's God speaking in and through Isaiah, the very words of God. And listen to what God says. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So the assumed audience, just to give you some context in this passage, are the exiles. They are in exile in Babylon. Uh, They're in Babylonian captivity. Uh, Just like we've been learning in Lamentations, the, the, the people of God have been sinful and rebellious towards God. And God warned them over and over again, sending prophet after prophet, warning them that if they continue to sin and rebel against God, that they were going to go into captivity. Well, they continue to sin and rebel against God, breaking covenant with him. And so God keeps his word and brings them into captivity. And so what God does here is he comforts his broken, hearted, exiled people by promising the world-transforming display of his glory. That's what was going to bring comfort to these broken-hearted people of God. God is incomparably powerful over all things and and promises strength for endurance to all who will wait on him. And we've been reminded that as Jay has been preaching in Lamentations. And much of the pagan religion 
in Isaiah's time, had succumbed to this astrological phenomenon, the worship of the stars. And in contrast to this, the Holy One of Israel is incomparable. There is no one like Him. And then there's, o- there's only one God, one and only true living God. And there is no one like Him. And He is the only one worthy of our worship. And we often have a, a low or, or small view of God. And in this passage that I just read in Isaiah 40, verse 26, we see that God creates the stars. There were about 5,000 stars visible at night at that time. And astronomers now estimate, however, that there are more than 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy and that there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. And so the, the total number of stars is estimated at 10 billion trillion And moreover, the God who created all these and calls each of them by name and not one is missing is reminding his people here that are in exile that he hasn't forgotten them. He has not forgotten them, and he won't forget them. Not one of his people will he forget. And this would have been a comfort to God's people at that time who were in exile in Babylon and the suffering that they were going through as it is for us today living as exiles in a foreign land as God's people, longing for the return of Christ, longing to see him, longing for the new heavens and the new earth. We are living in a foreign land. We are exiles, waiting for the heavenly city, whose architect and builder is God. And so we see here God is glorious, glorious isn't he? He's, he's all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's, he's sovereign. He's supreme. He's gracious, merciful, just, and holy. There is no one like him. And there are other, other ways that we see God's glory in Scripture. And so tonight I just want to cover a few. And again, I'm just scratching the surface. This is by no means exhaustive. So number one, we see God's presence and glory in eternity. We learned about this last week as David taught on John 17. Before God created anything, God was present. He is the eternal God. And Jesus captures this best in his high priestly prayer when he says in John 17, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed. So Jesus claims here deity, that he existed before the world existed or before the world was. This applies that the material universe is not eternal, but was brought into being by God. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. And before that, nothing material existed. But God existed as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And and here, Jesus speaks of a sharing of glory between the Father and the Son, prior to creation, implying that there was mutual glory and honor in this interpersonal relationship of the Trinity from all eternity. And so what a glorious reality and truth to meditate on. Second, we see God's presence and glory in his creation. And I think one of the best places to go in Scripture that captures God's glory in creation is Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. You can go to a lot of places in Scripture 
But for me, I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's glory, specifically him revealing his glory in his creation. Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. And this is familiar to a lot of us, but still absolutely glorious. It says this, Did the Lord answer Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. I think this would be a really good passage for us to read. Every morning we get up, it's the antidote to our own pride and self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. And notice how Job responds to God's reproof here in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. It's not a, a flippant or casual one by any means, but one of repentance and reverence and submission to the Lord. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours could be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his, that's God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the entire natural world bears witness to the glory of God through its beauty, its complexity, its design, and its usefulness. No one should complain that God has left insufficient evidence of his existence and his character. The fault is with those who reject this evidence. Psalm 19.1 says, very familiar passage, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I was thinking about that this afternoon as I was taking a walk, you know, walking outside and seeing the blue sky and all the trees and the birds and the squirrels talking to me. I mean, just thinking the heavens declare the glory of God. So God's presence and glory are seen in his creation. Three, we see God's presence and glory in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And so if you would with me, turn to Exodus chapter 40. Verse, and we're going to look at verses 34 through 38. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 
38. Or you could just listen. This is Moses' description of God's glory filling the tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus. After Moses has conducted all the tasks that God commanded him to do in building the tabernacle. So once that was completed, then this is what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the repetition in the narrative of these verses emphasizes the point that the Lord is present with all his glory in the midst of his people. The tabernacle was to be the tent of meeting where the Lord's presence was signified by the cloud and fire so that God's people might be sanctified by the glory of the Lord and know that he was their God who brought them out of Egypt in order that he might dwell among them. And so how amazing is this that the glorious, eternal creator God of all creation would condescend to dwell with the sinful people. And then note in verse 35 that right after the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, what does it say that Moses was not able to do? It says that he was not able to enter the tent of meeting. What does that tell us about God? It tells us that God is glorious, all glorious, and God is holy. And Moses could not even enter the tabernacle. Four, we see God's glory and presence in the temple. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 2 through 14. We're all over the scriptures tonight. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 2 through 14. It says this, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon, all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him, were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles, And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Oreb, 
where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt and when the priests came out of the holy place. For all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Iman, and Judithan, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So note two things here. First, God's glory filling the temple came in response to the Levites and priests' worship. As they were worshiping as God had prescribed is when the glory of God came and filled the temple. Second, look at verse 14. Sounds familiar to what we heard about Moses not being able to enter because of the glory and the holiness of God. Verse 14, the priest could not minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. We also see God's glory in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, as well as in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And these verses contain part of Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple and then how the Lord responded to Solomon's prayer. So let's look at Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. It says this, this is Solomon praying, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you. And then notice the Lord's response at the conclusion of Solomon's prayer. It's, this is in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. It should not go unnoticed here that the glory of the Lord prompted humble, reverent, thankful worship from the people of God. When they experienced the glory of God, the response of the people is reverent, thankful, humble worship. As it should with us. As we have encountered, if you're in Christ this evening, if you've encountered the glory of God in the face of Christ, 
Your response should be one of humble, repentant, reverent, joyful, thanksgiving, God-glorifying worship. Number five, we see God's presence and glory in visions. As we see in Ezekiel chapter 43, the, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of God's glory. As did other prophets like Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And listen to Ezekiel as I read Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. And Ezekiel is in Babylon with the rest of the exiles. The temple has been destroyed. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. And then Ezekiel gets this vision. Then he laid, led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Jabar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So clearly, the return of God's glory to the temple is one of the most dramatic moments in the book of Ezekiel. His return here, as we see in this passage, is the restoration counterpart to the departure of his glory that we saw earlier in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 through 22, as well as Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. It also brings completion to the temple tour. All that was lacking from this sacred space was God, was God himself, his very presence. However, this moment also forms a, a new beginning the arrival of God's glory in his temple inaugurates a new era in the relationship of God and his people. And this becomes the focus of the remainder of the vision, which leads to the ultimate expression of God's glory. There's continuity in all of Scripture. We see progressive revelation as we move throughout the Old Testament, talking about the glory of God, and now we're going to see that it's ultimately expressed in the very person and work of Jesus Christ. So we see God's presence and glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And this is unique. God manifesting himself in flesh and blood. And this is profound. Before God's presence and glory were consecrated in a building, as we just saw. But now it's in a person. And not any ordinary person. So if you would, turn with me to John, now in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Another very familiar verse to a lot of us. But I hope never gets boring. But hopefully it's always glorious to you. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, here it is, his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word dwelt there in verse 14 of John chapter 1 can be translated tabernacled. So just as the tabernacle in the Old Testament contained the the glory of God, an allusion is made to God's dwelling among the Israelites in in the tabernacle as we just saw. But now God takes up residence among his people in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who now lives in us if you're in Christ this evening. He dwells in us. He lives in us. And Paul talks about how Christ dwells in us and lives in us in various passages in the New Testament. Second, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Galatians 2.20. Colossians 1.27, to name a few. So the coming of Christ fulfills the Old Testament symbolism for God's dwelling with man in the tabernacle and the temple. He fulfills it. Old Testament, it's promises that are made by God. New Testament, promises that are fulfilled by God, ultimately in the person and work of Christ. Jesus' body is the true, final, and greater temple. And the Apostle John talks about that in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. So the Jews said to him, that's Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus, who is fully God, he's fully man, he came down from his glory, just like we saw in John 17 that David taught on last week. Came down from his glory in heaven to earth. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. Was falsely accused, beaten, and crucified unto death for our sins in our place where we deserve to be. We deserve to be on that cross. Suffering the wrath of God on our behalf that you and I so justly deserve because we have sinned and rebelled against the holy God. He, was, he died, and then he was raised from the dead, just like he said he was going to do. Conquering sin, Satan, death on our behalf for all those that repent and put their faith in Christ. And then we're reconciled to God, and we are adopted into his family as his children. That is the good news And that is absolutely glorious. 
absolutely glorious, that Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice that the author of Hebrews talks about. He's the final and perfect sacrifice for the sins of man, thus putting his full glory on display. And although the presence and the glory of God has clearly appeared in the person and work of Christ, the bad news is is that we have done what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 23. So this is the bad news. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We prefer to worship ourselves or God's creation or gifts rather than God. John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol factories. And he's right. He's absolutely right. We prefer to give our first and and deepest love and affection and attention and devotion and time and energy and money to ourselves or other things rather than to God. We prefer broken cisterns that can hold no water, as Jeremiah says. C.S. Lewis adds, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And the reality is, God is not glorious to an unbeliever. And the only remedy to that is the gospel. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6, and I think he's thinking about alluding back to the Old Testament and Moses and the veil. And he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, notice this, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, and I think Paul's thinking here also about now the creation account when God said, let there be light and there was light. He, he then says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, and check this, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you are in Christ tonight, Give thanks and praise to him for doing this right here, doing this in your heart. And pray that the Lord would shine the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ more and more into our hearts. More and more and more. Give me more. I want to see more of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Give me more of Jesus But also, may we pray that the Lord would do that in the hearts of unbelieving family, friends, co-workers, 
our neighbors, those who are lost in our city, those who are lost in our state, those who are lost in our nation and globally. As we strive by God's grace and spirit to share God's glorious gospel with the the lost world around us. So we have surveyed the scriptures, and again, this is, as I mentioned before, this is by no means an exhaustive list. I'm sure you can think of many other expressions of God's glory in, the, in his scriptures. But we have surveyed the scriptures and clearly see God's glory in eternity, in creation, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in visions, and ultimately and finally in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so with, with this in mind, let us now live our lives in light of what Titus says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. And then check this out. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. In closing, prayerfully consider this poignant quote from John Piper. It's so good. Listen to this. The supreme goal of God in history from beginning to end is the manifestation of his great glory. Accordingly, our duty is to bring our thoughts, our affections, and actions into line with this goal. It should become our own goal. To join God in this goal is called glorifying God. The way we glorify God is first to delight in his glory more than anything else and be grateful for it. Then as a natural result of this joy in God, we experience freedom from selfishness and are moved to seek the good of others. Thus, Love becomes the chief means by which we join God in the open display of his glory and accomplish his goal in history. So may God, in his grace and by his spirit, accomplish this work in our hearts and lives for his glory and for our good. And I think it is fitting and appropriate to end with a doxology written by Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. He writes, this is where he just busts out and prays as he reflects uh, all that God is in Christ. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So if you're able, please stand now and let us glorify God by singing together of his worth and glory. We're going to sing Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me.